Hey everybody, this is Vishal Krishna, the founder of the UpstreamLife.com. I love education. I think my parents invested in it and, you know, I've been following my dreams because of that education. But a lot of people can't afford education, but uh, there is somebody who is helping schools, help students. And I've got Steve Hardgrave with me, who is the co-founder of Vartana. Steve, what does Vartana do? Vartana provides loans to schools and students, the underserved sections of each of these, to help improve the quality and expand the capacity of education in India. Okay, but don't be fooled by his long hair. He is very Indian. He's been in India 11 years and this is very much a Bengaluru-based company. But we can check out the website, no? all the schools. Yeah, Vartana.com. There you go. There you have it. And quickly tell me, um, why does a school need a loan? Schools generally need financing to expand their infrastructure. Most of the schools we work with are covering costs, operational costs day by day. That's fine. But if they want to build a second story on the building, it's a big outlay yeah. that they don't have. And most of the time, banks won't lend to schools because there are trusts and societies yeah. and such and such. So that's the niche we find. That's well said. Guys, go check out vartana.com. And by the way, if you enjoy this podcast, ask me questions. I'll send them on to Steve who can answer it for you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. Yourself? I'm very good and I'm a fan of education and I love Vartana and its work. Uh, you're into obviously the student uh, school and college loan segment. Uh, you want to explain that a bit to me so that the audience understands what you do. Yeah, absolutely. We share your passion for education and Vartana is a finance company that gives loans to schools. Most of the institutions to whom we give loans are K-10, K-12. And then we provide student finance for higher education, post-secondary that could be vocational, technical, that could be college, postgraduate, um, upskilling. And the general theme is that we like to try and help underserved segments. And so the schools we serve are generally serving underserved segments, charging very low fees, and they're not getting access to traditional forms of finance. And then same with the higher students. And it'd be what, 600 rupees a month as a fee, right? That's how low they'd probably be charging the students. Correct, we, we attend to a range, so five, 600 would be at the kind of lower end, and then, there are some that go up to 2,000, 3,000. That also is different uh, compared to urban versus rural. This yeah. infrastructure plays very important because India is aspiring to grow. How many, about 250 million students in the K-12 segment at, at this moment of time? Yeah, so there's about 250 that are actually enrolled. There should be more. Okay. Um, but uh, And infrastructure is a key issue with that. And underlying this dynamic is overall the trend has been that about 50% of uh, primary, secondary school students are enrolled in government schools and about the same amount percentage in private. Now, that private number has always been increasing, and we generally believe that it's more now in private schools. As families move from abject poverty into some level of stability, they tend to transfer their kids to a low-cost private school, English-speaking and um, and so that's where the number of classrooms that are required is growing every year. Okay, uh, the company is called Vartana, and I like the way you say it. I say it in a very anglicized manner. It's Vartana. Correct. And uh, Vartana had an hypothesis, right? It's mm-hmm. you're in your tenth, eleventh year. When you go back ten years ago, what was the hypothesis for you? Uh, you were working in some finance companies. A little bit about your past, and what is the hypothesis behind this story? Yeah, at the time I was, uh, I had done, I had started a microfinance business in Mexico in my younger days, gone to business school and then come out and I was investing in microfinance businesses and other businesses around the world, all with this social lens of trying to make some return, but also have a social impact. And in my heart of hearts, I always had a huge passion for education because it's just a game changer 
on a family history trajectory. If a child has an education, they're going to be better off than they yes. are in school. And uh, so I was thinking of how, what is the way we can uh, support the education field? But it always was sounding like it was the realm of government or nonprofit. And then I came across some articles about the existence of low-cost private schools, which I couldn't believe coming from a U.S. background, private schools were the the thing that high-end families, you know, upper class went to. And so as I traveled the world doing my microfinance investments, I started to realize that this was true. The, the, the women in these microfinance groups, half of them were sending their kids to private schools. I asked why. And they said, it's better quality. They're more accountable. They teach English. I can keep my kid there longer. And then I asked the ladies, why do you send other ones? Why do you send your kids to government schools? And they said, I can't yet afford private schools. Oh, you've school. come here for a study kind of a thing? No, this wasn't such a formal study, okay. but in the course of doing my investments, I traveled the world uh-huh. and visited our investees. I'm sure were, even Mexico, it would be the same thing, right? Can I put my child This to is good Mexico, Latin America, Africa, India, all of these places. The, the dynamic is exactly the same. Because more family-oriented, uh, the kids, they want, you know, they want the kids to grow very fast and more, maybe emphasis on English more so in India. Uh, that's interesting, right? So this is yeah. what your travels th- told you? Correct. But why choose India? I mean, you could have stuck around Mexico, Latin America and built the microfinance thing. Yeah, so, so what we saw was then these schools, as I talked with the school owners, they were, they started these things on their own and they'd grown to a certain size, but they needed to grow. They were actually lacking seats and they couldn't get loans from microfinance because they needed bigger quantities. And then banks and finance companies weren't lending to them. So that's where the light bulb turned on and said, maybe uh, a specialized finance company that served this particular segment would be uh, productive. And then I looked around the world and there's no country like India. I don't know if most people realize, but India has the most young people ever in the history of the world that a single country has, nor will any country in the future history, future of the world have this many young people. So it's just a unique moment in time. This is the place to do this thing. Absolutely right. Just to give those numbers, I think numbers speak for itself, right? How many schools in India at this point of time in the K-12 segment? Well, private schools alone are four lakh. Oh, that's, a, that's quite a lot. Yeah. And then what about the government schools? Government schools would be like 3x. That. Okay, that's interesting. And the universities would also be a huge number of universities. Yeah, and I'm not sure how many universities are there. That number is actually growing and changing. And all these guys need finance. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously some of them in the higher ends of the segment have banking relationships oh, yeah. and what have you. But just like that whole, uh, you know, bottom of the pyramid thing, most of India works in these yeah. nasty, hairy, tough spaces. And most people have, want to avoid those. We, we love and live in those spaces. Actually, if you and I take a walk down the road, I'm sure there'll be three such schools, right? It's interesting. Many but more. they aspire to help. Many more, yeah. absolutely. And they really want to help students. It's not as if they're doing a business. It is a business. Yeah. But they genuinely want to grow as a school, right? They also want to be the top tier school, say, in 20 years down the line. Yeah, correct. And I don't want to over-romanticize yeah, the yeah, whole segment. Yeah, let's not. Let's not. Be, be. There are school owners who see this yes, as sir. an awesome business and they're squeezing every drop they can. <laughs> let's be frank, That's right? the truth about it. Yeah. Truth but there are gems of people that are just have beautiful hearts and, and they've devoted themselves to this. And it's it's a it's an extension of their personality in a lot of these communities. The school is that dude. It is that woman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an extension of her personality, and and uh, she puts a lot of heart and passion into it. It's it's so you come here and start work, huh? Uh You meet Rajesh. Is a, he comes on board? Yeah, we actually met years earlier okay. because uh, the first go at starting this, we started another school mm-hmm. finance company mm-hmm. in India. 
that we didn't control. Okay. Um, and that was the firm that I was working at, the investment firm. The founder of that firm had the open mind enough to, to fund this kind of thing. Okay. So we set up a, a business there and Burjesh was the, the local finance professional smart guy that we recruited to help run that thing. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that's not romanticized. It's so tough to build this business. Just give us the tenure tough. The thing that's made you tough the most is going to these small mom and pop shops or schools and saying that, look, you have a future. We'll help you with that future. Uh, we give you an infrastructure loan and probably it's a five year loan, right? Or yeah. It's, it can be as lo low as three, four years and okay. it can be as high as eight, nine years. Okay. Uh, so we, we look at that, but, um, the, uh, yeah, I would say there are two big challenges in the business. One is sourcing the schools. It's not a particularly digital savvy population. Yes. I think, so you can't sit back and run digital ads and just wait for business to come tripping over itself to get to you. Um, and so it's old school, you know, we have guys on two wheelers that yeah. have a wedge of geography and they just go in and out of every lane. Fortunately, schools are pretty visible. You can see it. And then they're trying to get past the gateman, past the secretary. Oh, yeah. And the third person is usually the promoter of the school. Um, and the promoter is usually the teacher also. He may be teaching as well, right? Maybe. Uh, sometimes they, they would teach a yes. course. Um, sometimes they're the headmaster or yeah. headmistress. Yes. And sometimes you see a husband and wife combo. One looks after the financing administration, the other the education. Um, and so convincing them, giving them confidence that this is for real because they would have had their hopes and been let down by other finance companies yeah. in the past. Glad you, uh, you, you raised this point. They would have raised money from outside, probably sources, friends, family. And that would have probably derailed a lot of these schools, right? Firstly, they have to get government permissions uh, to run a school. And that's a, that's a totally different subject. And then they get finance from you know these sources that high interest rates going up to about 50, 60% a year sometimes, right? I mean, I think that's something that you took on. Yeah, true, true. And, and that was really the opportunity for us. Most of them would have started, a lot of these would have had owned the land, so they wouldn't have had to make an investment in land. They would have used their own friends and family funds to kind of build the first few classrooms. And anyone who needed financing generally would have had to go for hand loans yes. uh, in the informal segment. And so for Vartana to come in. and But in the process, they would have had their hopes raised by a number of banks and then crashed. What do you mean? Well, the bank would say, oh, yeah, we can give you a loan. You have property to give us security. The traditional loan against property lab loan um, says that if you have property, I can give you a loan. But then you need to prove your income. And so most people have property and they've got a salary slip, you know, from a certain segment. Well, the school owner doesn't have a salary slip. Uh, she has a weird mix of fee income and everything. It's a, through a trust where she's not allowed to make profits. And so it's all a little opaque and difficult mm -hmm. to track. And so then the school's like, okay, you might have property, but first of all, it's a school property. I'm not so sure that's a good collateral. Secondly, I don't really trust your income. This is yeah, a non-profit. Oh yeah, you can't close the school property down. It works against the bank perhaps. Correct. Right? That's that's the belief, right? Okay. And so, uh, so anyhow, all this noise meant that they would have had their hopes raised and then dashed time and time again. So in the early days, we had to kind of convince schools that we were that first person, that first institution that was going to actually make good on this promise. Okay. When, when came to India, you, did you think that you're going to raise VC capital for this? Because your loan book is what, 1,100 crore at this point of time? Yeah, correct. Yeah. How did that shape up? Did you come here and say, I'm going to bootstrap this for a while, get 100 schools, and yeah. then say that I'm going to go raise capital? Did you think of that? Yeah, well, no. I mean, we knew we need to raise outside capital. And, and um, doing this as a for-profit was the only option. Um, though our main motivation was social, 
the numbers in India means that there's not enough free handout money out there. We'd be begging for donations our whole life. We would couldn't get to this scale. And so we knew that to raise the right amount of money, we had to have an awesome business. Yes. That gave investors a return that was... Yeah, rather than knock on the door of CSR, that's right. to give us the donation. Right. Work so then you get to focus on just running the business yes. and the money kind of chases you a little bit. But in those early days, it was difficult to convince people. Um, 2011, 2012, when we were starting this, or raising capital, there was still the shadows on the microfinance yes. uh, crisis. It wasn't a great time for financial services. It was going services down, yeah, I remember there was a lot of bad press around that. Correct. And so, uh, you know, this was, it was difficult, it took us a long time, but unfortunately bootstrapping this wasn't an option because neither of us were that wealthy. And as a finance company, you can bootstrap a technology company where you're eating top ramen and coding <laughs> in someone's living room. But as a finance company, you're shoveling money out the door every day to your customers. Yes. And the more successful you are, the more you shovel out. So you need pretty serious money. So we just had to jump in and, and take that time to convince a few crazy okay. people to fund Did you us. have uh, an NBFC license at the time? Well, we got that in, in that first year. Oh, you did? And so you managed it through the previous company that you worked at? No, no, we did, did that on our own. We acquired an existing uh, finance company oh, that did. was based in, in Kerala called Tirumini Finance. Okay. And uh, so we acquired that with that, that projection. I used kind of our own funds for that. Wow. And then on the back of that, we went out and raised the other. That, that's another thing. All right, quickly touch upon before talking about the first success stories that you had. How tough was it to get this license? Because I know at the moment, you know, it's like, I mean, for whatever better word, I mean, it's like licenses are a rent, right? I mean, people command top dollar. How did you manage it at the time? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not easy, but fortunately, and this was... Obviously, you know, 11 years, 12 years back. So I think it was maybe easier at the time. Uh, but there are, you know, professional organizations and what have you that kind of filter out the pipeline. And the main thing you need to focus here is you don't want to inquire, acquire a license and an entity that has any kind of a shady track record because those skeletons will yeah. haunt you going forward. And if you're trying to raise money from institutional investors, they'll run for the hills. Um, so did you have to do due diligence in this company? That's right. On your own amount. completely? No, that's where we also hired smarter people to help us with that. <laughs> they could really dig into all the details. and But we did a super, so, super so thorough. Moved it pretty fast. I mean, probably yeah. what, one year time? Did it take you one No, months, months. months. Yeah. And that was crucial. So you yeah. knew that without being an NBFC, Correct. you would not Absolutely. be able to move the needle, right? Yeah. And those days, we're not talking about tech companies like today, right? They just go partner with an NBFC. That's and right. They, and they lend with an FLDG kind of thing. That's right. right. That's right. right. We, we did it from a balance sheet from the start. Okay. And, and talk about the first few successes, uh, knowing that policy, uh, it's education is a state subject, right? Co it's state and, state and uh, central. central. Yeah. How did you how did you manage the two in terms of policy? And what are the policy changes that have happened in 10 years? And we could talk about the success stories along with that. Yeah. Well, you know what? What's one nice thing about being a finance company, there's a lot of nuances to this, but... We're one degree removed from all of that fray. And, um, you know, we always had the vision that, okay, we can provide capital to these uh, groups. And then we can also provide additional support and resources and giving them access to didactic materials yes. and, and technology and all the latest education. And one of the things that's always been there in the shadows is advocacy. And that's super required because this group of, of very small localized private schools is not a voice that gets heard to uh, yeah, often on the, the policy side. But one of the things that we came to is 
probably a finance company read by run by some long-haired Californian dude is not the best group to be hardcore advocacy for Indian education policy. So we've kept a pretty muted role there and let that be the domain for others that, that have come and done decent work there. But mainly we've worked around that. I think probably there's been there's been a ton of change, right? The, the biggest first one after we launched was the Education for All, yeah. um, you know, program and what have you. And That's and, a scholarship program. Yeah, yeah, where they uh, force actually private schools to make available a certain number of seats to underserved uh, segments and then the government covers those. So that, that was a, a big shock and uh, what have you to the system, but didn't really, I mean, one thing is certain about schools in this segment, they are um, very headstrong yeah. and what come what may be the policy, they adjust and adapt and, and they make it work. Yeah, and, and, and these people who gave you a chance, do you remember the first school that signed up with you? Yes, um, there's a school called uh, Edith Douglas here in Bangalore. And a uh, very amazing woman runs that school. Uh, she's like taken in orphans and, and uh, has one of these people that's a, a true believer, runs it with her heart and soul. Um, and so we had her over a big cake cutting and everything like that. And she was a customer of ours for eight, nine years and uh, loan after loan after loan. We got to see her school grow up. And this has been the story of a lot of our clients. How, how many students did she start with? And now she um, at the time that we came in, I uh, and the woman who runs it is Victoria. So she can correct me if I'm wrong in the comments <laughs> or what have you. But I think she was about four or five hundred students when we started. And um, she's grown to be more than a thousand students. That's super kudos yeah. to her. Yeah, and we, we've had other people that start with three hundred and are now touching close to three thousand. So they become proper mid-tier schools. Then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's where it's you know from the emotional side. Well, again, we run this as a business, but your heart uh, melts kind of when you see that these people say you know every brick of this school was financed by Vartana and and there's a lot of kind of mutual appreciation and right. you stuck to it you didn't go dilly dally with technology saying I'll digitize it now that I've given you a loan I'll digitize your school or something of that sort right well we're always happy to support yeah. that um the truth of the matter is and you know we love technology uh -huh. and what have you and and technology is great in yes. a lot of ways but technology isn't a magic wand that solves That's all solve problems and so I think people are too quick to think that, that oh, technology is there, we can... You know, and everybody adopts. And, yeah. And, and so, you know, in particular, at a lot of these schools, if you... And this was very apparent during COVID. Below a certain fee level, the parents at home don't have devices and connectivity yeah. to even consume if the school had, um, you know, installed that technology. How did you handle that time, those two years in India, where, you know, you had funded a lot of these schools and... Mm. How did they transform themselves and did you help them and did, did they struggle to create? Yeah, um, so I would say this business has been tough every year, but the, the years of COVID really tested our, um, our probably our, our energy and our willpower and also our systems and processes and just the boring uh, financial strength of the company. But um, I would put schools in several segments. The higher end schools already had technology yeah, embedded yeah. in their program. It was effortless just to convert yeah. that and say, okay, and no more. And told the parents that you got to download this app, take this they, they, In those schools, they would have already had yes. this, right? So that's why it was so seamless there. And uh, then there would be kind of a, another tier of schools that maybe had to tell client, uh, the, the parents yeah. to get prepared at home and whatever. There was maybe another tier that was not yet in that position, but we were able to support them to put something that was very basic remote online which could use a smartphone, 
and maybe static kind of not a dynamic live classroom as much, but some oh, level of digital content. content. Yeah, we help create a whole WhatsApp based system and, and a whole, all kinds of content, partnering with a lot of ed techs that created this content and make it available. Um, and then there was the bottom tier, which the parents had no hope of having the right kind of technology. So there we created a whole system of paper based packets that we delivered home to the students and the students could mark it up, turn it back into the school, get marked up by the teachers. And so it was remote, non-digital. Wow, it's like a, you would also collect these papers and give it to the teachers. And that's, yeah. that's interesting. And that system, even a couple of state governments utilized our materials for that. So here, again, the irony, a private finance company was creating educational materials for the government. Would you, would you, what would be the most fruitful time for you in the 10 years? Of, would, would, I mean, obviously, any policy and the NEP must be great at this point in time. Uh, it's a great step in the right direction. And I think that's the beautiful thing. You know, the, the whole sector continues to evolve mm -hmm. and, and grow. I think we're far, far away from being perfect. But uh, every year, I think, is, is a step generally in the right direction. There's huge setbacks. You know, India closed schools more aggressively than almost any country in the world. I think Uganda maybe outdid India. But the damage from two years of almost entire two years of, of closures means that the kids in the system right now are very handicapped. And so we wow. need the whole kitchen sink uh, at, at res resolving that, that setback. And, and obviously, who's addressing that issue? I mean, do, do schools come to you and say, can you connect this to a partner who can address this? Is that happening? Well, well and, I, and obviously, there's a huge number. The, the ed tech fascination has been there and, of course, was went through its glory days during COVID and has had a bit of a hangover now. Um, but I think there's a lot of good players out there that are um, that embrace the hybrid strategy, and so they're very embedded in schools. Lead School is one. I think you had uh, Infinity Learning on board. That's the Chaitanya one. groups. Correct, correct. Up, yeah. And so, uh, and and there's many, many more. You know, the long tail of, of people that are out there doing that great work. Um, so we're happy to kind of. That's the nice thing about yeah. not being one of those providers is we can be a little agnostic and really support schools to partner with whoever they okay. need to. But I would say not enough has been done to really recognize this problem. Mostly the expectations have been dumbed down. And one of my big worries is that the standard Indian graduate compared with the Vietnamese or the Indonesian graduate, will they become competitive on the, That's the global market? That's been scaring me for the last two decades too. I mean, I've been writing something called educated but not employable. Mm. That's it starts in school, right? I mean, how do you prepare them to higher education? Correct. I hope we solve that. And that we could do an entire podcast around that some other Several, time. Several, a whole series. Yeah, a whole series around that. Uh, what about the top tier uh, schools working with you? Do they come to you too? Top tier in yeah, terms, in terms of, uh, of high fee, like yeah, uh, high fee, high fee IB program. Yes. No, most of those schools uh, have enough of a solid financial okay. backing and okay. feelings to where the banks will support them. And where it's tough for us to compete with banks is we have a certain cost of capital by being a funky, strange yeah, yeah, yeah. NBFC. Um, and banks can beat us out on the interest rate. So we don't too much Other waste our time up there. Absolutely. And what about the universities? India is now also opening lots of universities. Mm -hmm. And like the school story, the same thing with the universities. They don't have funds. Do they come to you? Yeah, we do get, uh, again, it would Various. be kind of the similar yeah. segment, uh, a lot of local colleges, nursing colleges, yes. and, and different uh, types of institutes and stuff like that, will support them. And that's where it's interesting because we can support them with institutional loans. And we can also, if their students require financing, that's where our student loan can Okay, come. if the audience hasn't already gone to the Vartana website by now, 
I want you to tell them that they take the loan for the infrastructure. They can take it for the furniture, paraphernalia, other things, right? Yeah, that's right. right? Anything that has to do with improving the quality or expanding the capacity of the school, we're fine with. But for your your daughter's wedding or what have you know. <laughs> Maybe a playing field. Yeah, even that. Uh, now, setting it up again. What we want to see is is that w one of the big things that you see here is a move from state board to more and more uh, parents and families wanting CBSE central really? board programs. So infrastructure requirements there are greater. So we don't mind uh, those Support. kinds of investments. Most of what we do ends up being classrooms. Yeah, Steve, we've covered so much, and you know, India is now known to the world. India is young. A lot of people looking at young, at India for its technology answers. You know, the startup community is growing. A lot of startups go there, unicorns and whatnot. It's all over the press. But you are in education and you know what's really going on in different segments. How do we stack up when we compare ourselves to Africa or say even Latin America? What are some of the things that we need to fix all the way to a young nation? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a couple of dynamics going on here. And one is the overarching quality. of uh, You know the stories of... India participating in global yeah. quality uh, uh, benchmarks and not performing well. Uh, so that's there. Now, the, the tough thing here is, of course, you have an elite level of Indians, a small, small percentage that are top of the globe. And you, you just need to look at how many Indian CEOs there are around the world to know that India knows how to get it right. It's just getting it right with a very, very small percentage of its population. But because the population is so huge, that's still a lot of people on a global perspective. The challenge is how to institutionalize that down market. And that's a huge issue, which I would say one of the things, obviously resources need to flow into that. Um, I think there are probably some cultural elements just in yes. terms of the strata of the population and what have you. And some of this is exponential. Once you get a certain strong middle class developing and parents who have been through this, they're much better at supporting kids to go through this. And so it will accelerate. But right now, you still have a lot of people whose parents haven't navigated this world, so they don't know how to usher their children through it. Yeah, the continuation of it. Right? That's yes. right. And then I think from an education point of view, we tend to be on the side of cram, 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 repeat, repeat, repeat. And you would know that um, the education in the West and I think a lot of the jobs that are required require more dynamic thinking for yourself rather than uh, repeating and spitting out an answer once it's drawn. And, and so I think at the mass level, we're not there change. yet. No, I, I, I'm glad you gave us the data. Four lakh schools, private side. Um, most of them aspiring to grow bigger. But I only I, you use a very beautiful term. You've got to institu institutionalize that strata. Hmm. And that the government and the corporate, they can work together. Do you see oh, the, the corporate world, startups, whatnot, and CSR maybe. And obviously the government work together to do this. Yeah, this is a tough and, and often a politically charged yeah, uh, conversation. Um, I'm very pragmatic on this, and I think, you know, there's a camp that says private schools are completely evil because they undermine the fundamental human right to a free education. I think that's kind of beautiful on paper, but that's not yeah. the world we live in. That's good university paper. Yeah. And uh, I have never attended a day of private school in my life, so I'm a firm believer in good public institutions. Having said that... So you um, have a combination of the two. So you're yeah. saying it... it that's why you're saying that it's more, it's pragmatic to also have private schools. Yeah, no and, and what I'm saying is you have these models where there's uh, PPP, public-private yeah. partnership. And so I'm okay to even say, let the government just focus on making the government schools better mm -hmm. than they are, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a, there's a, segment, a huge segment of India's population that just cannot afford any flavor of private school. 
those folks deserve and need to be attended to. And so I would say, let the government budget flow there. And if uh, that's what I said. If the public, the private institutions, the uh, corporates and what have you with CSR want to support that side, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. If they want to support the private side, that's awesome as well. One of the challenges is since there's lacks of little tiny small private schools, those guys don't show up on the map to try and get CSR funding. So I do think there's a, a middle industry there in being able to channel these kinds of resources. Did you want to build this kind of model? Yeah, it, it's... Uh, now it's that you're 10 years old... Correct. And and we've been, you know, I always say kind of jokingly, we're somewhat of an investment banker for schools (laughs) because we've done this on a small level. This is challenging because if I look at it from a sustainability side as well, I don't want these schools to be dependent on CSR. So it's a two-edged sword here because if you get this big chunky CSR and then that disappears and you know how fickle these kinds of budgets and contributions can be. So one of the things I love is these schools are successful because the parents that have such a scarcity of resources view this as so important that they'll sacrifice a high percentage for that school. I don't disagree with that model. And I think as long as we can support the schools with financing, with resources like uh, content and everything like that, we don't need to worry about doing too much else. Let the market work it out. It's been showing that it, it works. Okay. I also want to know how many of these schools that uh, you work with, uh, you know, the NBAs are quite low in this. How, how low would it be? Well, that's a pre and post COVID yeah. kind of story. Yeah. Uh, pre COVID, we ran NBAs of one and a half to two percent, which is normal banking. Yeah, yeah correct. And, and for a segment that I think most people would have said, no, you're crazy to attend mm-hmm. to this segment. Um, during COVID, we saw these numbers spike to the high teens. And that's because 20% of our, 30% of our school base wasn't allowed to have live classes and I mean the whole base didn't wasn't allowed but but that lower end segment didn't have wow. a remote alternative so we've brought that number back down to reasonable but not yet back to no, thank to you for that honesty I mean seriously I mean that's something that we all need to fix mm. I mean another event like that and you're right the students are now behind right you alluded that to that yeah. earlier yeah, yeah. okay uh, so that's that's something that's normal two percent and obviously brought down from high teens to after COVID Right. What's the future for Vardhana now? Um, you've obviously done very well 10 years. You've also raised equity. What's next yeah. for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the short term is to get back on the track we were on prior mm-hmm. to COVID. COVID was a big hiccup in our existence. Um, and we're on that track. And so, you know, over the next couple of years, the portfolio should grow to over 3,000 crore. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that makeup of that is going to be still mostly from school loans, but for us, the student loan business is much newer. That's still about 10% of the That's for the higher education. That's correct. That's people going to Europe and America. No, no, no. We don't do any study abroad. Again, we like the tough segments. Okay. So we only do domestic and we only, we primarily work with those underserved families. Mm -hmm. These are one lakh tickets. And and, and it's interesting to raise that. Uh, Do local colleges subvent the interest in many ways? They do sometimes. Yeah, we we do sometimes straight interest structure sometimes there's a subvention mm-hmm. methodology okay. but i'd like to see that book grow to be above 30 percent a very good book i think i think if colleges realize that you know they're allowing their students to get funding you know parents i mean they could probably subvent part half of the interest and that's a great business model yeah correct and, and if you're a university and you have empty seats you want to fill them up yeah you, you have no additional cost by putting a butt in that seat Right. Uh, you already have hired the teacher. You already have the infrastructure. So the incremental marginal cost is almost nothing. So it, it, you, it makes sense for you to help okay. out. 
quickly, technology is not the answer, right? I mean, a lot of the unicorns out there, you know, we've had a lot of good press for education in the last many years. Mm. And suddenly, especially on the tech side, so much PR. You know, and now suddenly there's this dip saying that oh, they've single-handedly destroyed the goodness of what people like you are trying to do. How will that get fixed? Do you think India is still the opportunity? No, it, by, you know, absolutely India is the opportunity uh, and the, the, the shared demographics and how important this is to India's future. Look, if this doesn't get solved, India is screwed yeah. in a couple yeah. decades, right? Um, yeah. If social unrest, the economy, everything is going to collapse. So it's too important not to get solved. And I think India understands that and is chipping away at that. Technology is not the silver bullet. You know, it's like a good salsa. I, I, I lived in Mexico <laughs> know, for a long time. You can't eat only salsa. Uh-huh. Salsa is to be put on other stuff to make it spicy and awesome. So technology has its place and its role like that, but you can't just uh, expect that technology magically solves things. You're going to get these euphorias and cycles where it comes and goes, and this is too precious of a thing to surrender to that. So I think a little more slow and steady and complementary mm-hmm. uh, is the approach. Okay, you've been in India 11 years now. Mm. Um, how Indian have you become? <laughs> yeah, I, I would How native say, have you become? Yeah, I, I'd say I, I guess I can appreciate a, a good head bobble, uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. And and my favorite is the smug yes, like <laughs> when you ask someone like, you know, did you do this on time or like? <laughs> you you learned that, I mean. Yeah, yeah, that, that's my favorite. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, you can ask anyone who knows me and they would say I drive like an Indian uh-huh. and I need to rehabilitate every time I go back to the U.S. because people oh, yeah. look right at me like I'm now. possessed on not just the right side, but occupying every space possible oh, yeah. and all of that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I've got my, I pick my spots, but, you know, unfortunately, I haven't learned any of the local languages. And so there's time for that. Yeah, yeah there's time I, for that. You're also a guitar player. Yeah. And uh, what type of music do you play? Any recommendations? And what was your band called? Uh, well, yeah, I guess I played in all, all sorts of bands since I was uh, young, but uh, the, my band in college was called No One. Uh-huh. Um, we played, you know, alternative kind of music, if you think back to n- 90s, kind yeah. of 80s. So Cure, R.E.M., U2, Pixies, bordering on to some punk stuff is what I really like. So despite the, the long hair, I'm not really a heavy metal guy. Um, but uh, here, I don't have too much time. So I play in my church worship okay. band and okay. then I, uh, you know, uh, play at home. So you still keep in touch. That's nice. You still play regularly. Yeah. Uh, any particular type of music you'd recommend? What's the favorite album you've heard all time? Oh, favorite all time. Dude, that's... Too many, I know. Too if t- you want to pick one. Wow. Well, like, certainly growing up, U2 was my... Uh, Joshua Tree? Yeah. Well, Joshua Tree that. is is that uh, the famous one. And yeah. So if you want hit power, that's, that's the one. Okay. Uh, for sure. But if you want to get... Uh, I would highly recommend War. Which yeah, is, the one in '82. Yeah, yeah correct yeah. with that. Yeah, that's a beautiful with the boy and the helmet. Exactly. Yeah, that's the one. Exactly. That's a great album. I yeah, agree yeah. with that. Okay, uh, what's your favorite book and recommendation? Well, yeah. So this uh, obviously, I'm I'm a Jesus guy. So book, book like that, Bible. I yeah. just can't get enough yeah. of it. That's your faith. That's important. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. That's, Other than that, yeah. So I would say on the fiction side, uh, Brothers Karamazov. Okay. I mean, just the human drama. Mm-hmm. spelled out and then on the more intellectual side even though it was several years back i'm still fascinated with the approach of sapiens oh you love you love that is it yeah, yeah that's a pretty strong book and, and we all like telling stories yeah that's what sapiens is all oh, about right so awesome and I, I studied economics undergrad and i guess it just jived with my framework level of thinking and enough data but enough narrative 
behind it, you know, is fascinating. There's so much more to discuss. Uh I'll see you in your office soon, but thank you for being on this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Mm -hmm.